everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly here. Well, the presidential election may be over, but it left us with a lot of juicy storylines to contemplate and wallow in for weeks and months to come. For example, there's the one about the emerging pluralistic majority, a kind of rainbow coalition of which white folks are only one part. And there were the breakthroughs for gay rights and pot legalization. And also the epic fail of the super PACs. All those crappy ads costing millions of dollars and little or nothing to show for it. All very good narratives, I'd say, but we are going to focus today on a different one. The one I am calling the Revenge of the Nerds. And by nerds, I mean those number-crunching stat jockeys who successfully predicted the outcome of the election with spooky accuracy. In some cases, months before we actually voted. These uh, polling aggregators, as they're often called, had to put up with a lot of static during the campaign. They got insults and dismissals from conventional political commentators. They were charged with partisan bias by some on the right. And they were told that their findings were wrong and that the polls were skewed. And if they knew what they were doing, they'd see a big wave of momentum in those final weeks, fixing to sweep Governor Romney into office. But the stat guys just shrugged all that off and stuck to their numbers and continued to lay big odds on an Obama win. They even offered up a very detailed state-by-state picture of how it was all going to go down. And then, as we all know, Election Day came, and they crushed it. Well, everybody loves a winner, and now the stat geeks are being feted and hailed and crowned. And some people are saying that uh, the whole age of blowhard pundits is dead, and we've entered a new millennium of data-driven precision and predictability. Well, I, for one, am going to welcome two of our new quantitative overlords to the show today. And uh, I should say that neither of them is Nate Silver, the best known of the polling aggregators and uh, New York Times blogger whose winning picks have made him something of a geek god. Yes, Nate is great, but so are my two guests, who pretty much nailed their forecasts, too. I'm going to ask them how they did it, what it means for us, and if maybe all of that stuff I was just saying about a new era of numerical certainty isn't just a little overblown. I'll let my first interviewee introduce himself. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm Associate Professor of Molecular Biology and Neuroscience, and I'm also co-founder of the Princeton Election Consortium. The Princeton Election Consortium sounds yes. like a big outfit. Yes, <laughs> it does sound <laughs> impressive. It's, uh, we, we puff ourselves up to look big. <laughs> who does it consist of, actually? Uh, it consists of me and a Princeton alum, Andrew Ferguson, who went to Princeton, is a computer scientist, and, uh, and we started collaborating on uh, piping my hobby out to the world four years ago, and we've been keeping it up ever since. So I imagine it's you, Andrew, and a bunch of algorithms. That's right, and a very nice data feed from the Huffington Post. <laughs> they supply your raw polling data? They do. They supply it to everyone if you can read XML, which is a data standard, uh, and they'll send it to anyone who wants it. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, tell us, for those who don't already know, what your prediction was and how it compared to the actual result in the presidential election. Okay, well, uh, ever since August, my... Uh, Software, my algorithms have been using state polls to predict an Obama victory by over 300 votes in the Electoral College. Uh, On Election Eve, they predicted uh, 303 electoral votes, and so far he's got 303, and it looks like I might be off a little bit. looks like he's going to be getting 332 in the end because of Florida. Yeah, Romney has conceded Florida, though I guess that result isn't yet official. Right. But, but when it is, uh, it would be 332. Yeah. So and off also, by a little I also bit. Predicted, um, I should also say that I also predicted uh, the popular vote to within a few tenths of a percentage point of the total, and I predicted uh, Democratic gains in the House and Senate, and all these things came true. Uh, very small gain in, in the House, but um, good pickup in the Senate. That's um, true. And this is not the first time you've done this, Sam. No, it's not. I've been doing this since 2004. And you had you had equally impressive results in the 2004 elections and in 2008, true? That's, these algorithms do very well. Uh, they did very well with 2004 data, with 2008 data, um, and as I said, uh, some of these down-ticket things as well. Okay, so what kind of secret next-level wizardry and necromancy are you doing to predict human behavior when they said it couldn't be done? Let's see. Well, the necromancy involves doing the following. The first step is to calculate a median. So you take all the polling data and you calculate the middle number, which actually doesn't require any calculation. 
It requires sorting out the numbers and seeing which one's in the middle. And then the next step involves a little bit more math, converting that to a probability of who's ahead in each state, and then filtering all that through the Electoral College, which is how we elect a president, and turning that into a single number, which is an electoral thermometer that tells us exactly where the race is at any given day during the campaign. Now, unless I miss something, all the ingredients you just described, okay, starting first of all with mostly state polls, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, conducted by traditional pollsters, applying, you know, simple arithmetic like finding the median and some time-worn statistical methods, um, there's nothing super new, super space-age about this, or am I wrong? Uh, You are correct. This is not rocket science. Uh, There are things that I do that are a little harder than that, but the basic phenomenon of looking at polling data, which is which comes from experts, pollsters, and figuring out what it all means when you put it together is something that's within the reach of uh, pretty much any hobbyist. And yet you and your fellow, and I'm not sure what the, the best name for you guys is, let's say poll aggregators, poll quants, stat geeks, um, I've heard all kinds of terms. I think you need a new one, maybe gators. Um, <laughs> you and these other guys are being treated as magicians, as oracles, as... Well, in the case of Nate Silver, uh, demigods. Yes, well, <laughs> um, that's true. That is, that is the way that, uh, that we're being treated, uh, especially Nate. Um, I think that what's going on here is that it was a close race, and when there's something like a blowout, like, uh, like the Obama-McCain race four years ago, which was no mystery to anybody, uh, these things are easy to predict. But when things get really close, it takes somebody who can really read the data and do good quantitative, unbiased analysis to see what's going on. And those of us who do that um, were able to see what was really happening. And that was not possible by looking at a single poll. And it was not possible by listening to pundits who went by their gut or perhaps their political preference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, in, in taking a bunch of polls, and particularly state polls, uh, di- by the way, did you pretty much ignore the national polls, the, the Gallups and the Rasmussen's and the Pews and those other national polls? For the calculation that I just described about estimating electoral votes, yes, I ignored that because that's not uh, how we elect a president. However, those polls are not without value. It's just that historically they can often be, on average, as a group, a few points off. And in a race this close, uh, being a few points off makes them somewhat less useful than state polls, which are really a gold standard. State polls have done so well in 2008, 2004. If you look back, uh, state polls told us that, in fact, Florida was going to be critical in 2000, and we all know that that's true. Um, and so, really, the national polls are interesting, but in a tight spot where you're not entirely sure who's ahead, they become less useful. Now, are you saying state polls are better simply because it is ultimately the states, the breakdown by electoral vote, uh, that decides the election? Or are they better in some more fundamental way? Are, are they, they, that is interesting. Uh, they are also more accurate. Um, so, for instance, as a group, if you take all the national polls available, calculate the median, which is a good way to analyze um, data that where there might be one lemon in there someplace. Uh, even when you do the best possible statistical analysis on the national polls, they can still be off by two or three points in a given presidential election. And so they have a problem there, whereas state polls are, as a group, uh, state by state, accurate to within a point. One possibility is that pollsters have an easier time surveying, say, the residents of Florida compared with the residents of the entire country because they can concentrate on the demographics of that one state. Mm -hmm. And so state polls really do better than national polls. There's something about them. They tend to have a larger sample size compared to the population they're sampling, right? Well, it's certainly true that if you're surveying national opinion, you end up surveying people in states where they're not going to have much of a role in determining the outcome, like, you know, say, uh, Utah or Vermont. Or uh, because it's already settled who's going to win, or maybe uh, as it turns out, you've got some demographic you're trying to hit, and in your sample there is one person representing that demographic. And if you're in a smaller state, then let's say if you're in a state where you know that there is a large Latino population, then you make certain to uh, see that that group is represented in your sample. Your algorithm, your approach to aggregating uh, the state polling data that we're talking about, um, does it involve anything beyond the polls, uh, factors like economic data, you know, to try to gauge the mood of the electorate? Uh, no, nothing like that at all. So um, the method requires just looking at polls, which are a direct measure of opinion. And the things you're describing, like, say, gross national product growth or unemployment rate, those are factors that influence opinion. But once the opinion is influenced, the most direct way to find out what the opinion is is to measure it. And so the polls themselves 
are in some sense downstream of all those other causes. And my approach has been to take the most direct measurement, the poles, and feed them into the math. And those other things are, are good for if you're trying to determine, say, what the tilt of the playing field is at the beginning of the, of the game. But once the ball goes into play, what you want to know is where the ball is. I guess that's one difference between you and some of the other aggregators, uh, for instance, Nate Silver, who, uh, as I understand it, uh, in the months and weeks leading up to the election, is factoring in some of those external factors and then gradually pulls them out of the equation as we get closer to Election Day until he's finally basing it all on polling data as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, one thing that's funny about that is that it's it's somewhat unknowable uh, what value that adds because the only time when we can really have the test is on Election Day, and we performed virtually equally well, and by some quantitative measures, exactly equally well. So one could ask, what are you adding there? What I would say is that there could be value added by adding those variables, but what I wanted to do was to have a measure of where opinion is today. I want to know, did the first debate do a lot of good for Mitt Romney? Did Michelle Obama's speech do much good for the Democrats? And I think that sharp picture that changes day by day is something that can potentially interest a lot of people, and that was what I was trying to do this year. Mm -hmm. um, now, for those of us who look at the polls, sometimes obsessively, um, in retrospect, we can now say that some of them were pretty far off, right? That's, oh, that's definitely the case. Uh, <laughs> for instance, I mean, Gallup, uh, when they switched from their registered voter model to their likely voter model a couple weeks before the election, had uh, at one point Romney ahead by seven points, I believe, and, and he was ahead by a, a, a pretty good margin right up until, can I say Hurricane Sandy, or do I have to say Superstorm Sandy? <laughs> Just uh, Sandy is fine. We, we in New Jersey uh, have gotten to be on a first-name basis with Sandy. So right up until Sandy, and then um, Gallup pulled the plug on its daily tracking poll for a while and reappeared after Sandy with a much closer election. Uh, but until then, they'd, they, they were pretty far off, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, if you look carefully at the uh, at, at a meta-analysis, which is what I do, of all the polls, it looks like there was not a single day of the race when Barack Obama was behind Mitt Romney. It looks like Obama was in the lead every single day of the campaign. And if we accept that as ground truth, as, the, as what was actually going on, then we can ask the question, well, how on earth did Gallup get a Romney plus seven result? And I think... I think that's an interesting question, and I'm quite certain that the smart people at Gallup are having internal meetings trying to figure out what exactly happened there, because they, you know, they've been in the business for decades, and conditions change. We didn't have cell phones uh, in wide use at the time that they really were at their peak, and so what I imagine is that their smart people are looking at what they did and trying to figure out what went off the rails. Oh, and you say when they were at their peak, you mean when Gallup was the gold standard? That's right. Uh, oh, that hurt. That hurt. Well, the fact is they're not now. They're not. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we can agree on that. Um, but they're a good example of how even a, a reputable poll can go pretty wrong. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, wouldn't all the suspicions lay with their, their likely voter model, the, the idea that they are trying to figure out who's really going to vote and then um, <clears throat> tabulate those responses and rule out the people who aren't going to vote? And, of course, that involves a lot of guesswork. I think that's right. I would say that individual pollsters can often make mistakes. They are competent at their craft. This is a well-established profession. But the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of decisions that have to be made. And sometimes individual pollsters maybe not don't quite get it right. So here's a question for you. Given that individual pollsters can get it wrong, uh, it sort of follows that everybody could get it wrong and that an aggregator, uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? That, that you could be pretty far off. Why is it, do you think, that by taking, what do you take, you know, dozens of, of state polls? Yeah, at uh, any given moment, there are something like 100 polls in, in the database that feed our calculation. So though there's no real magic in your statistical analysis, and there's no real magic in the, uh, the protocols of polling, that's really as old as the hills. You ask people what they're going to do, and you, you know, add up their responses uh, and, and do a few statistical tests to, to show that it is representative of the general population. But... If there's any magic in all this, it is that phenomenon whereby a bunch of people trying to get the right answer somehow collectively uh, arrive at something more reliable than any individual. That's, That's kind, right. it's kind of weird. Why is that? Uh, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's this principle that economists call uh, the wisdom of crowds, right? Yeah, it's yeah. The idea that somehow they can get it right when they work together, even though individually they don't quite make the right decision. I mean, we can see that also in pricing of commodities, that kind of thing. 
I think what's going on here is that everybody's got to make a decision about how many women will vote, how many Latinos will vote, how many people under the age of 40 will vote, whatever it might be. Uh, and they're all making their best guesses. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you, for instance, have people, I don't know, guess how many beans in the jar, if you uh, take the median value, if you arrange all their guesses in a row and uh, in order and take the one that is m- in the middle of that ordered list of, of guesses, that middle guess often does quite well. And that is a principle that takes individual judgments and puts them together into something that's better than any one person's judgment. You know, I've also heard that, that your approach of taking a bunch of state polls and aggregating them gives you the advantage of ultimately a much, much larger sample than any individual pool. I mean, the individual polls might have sample sizes ranging from, say, 500 people to, what, you know, 1,000, right. whereas you, by looking at, uh, let's say, a dozen Ohio polls, have 12 times that many people sampled. That's right. Just on those grounds alone, it's uh, it's an advantage to aggregate multiple polls. And maybe you can clear this up for me, though, Sam. I've also heard it said that the reason that even at the national level, the sample sizes typically are in the range of uh, 1,000, maybe up to 2,000, and they stop there, and polling organizations don't go crazy and poll 10,000 people. The reason is that there is a sweet spot where you get a really, uh, you know, pretty low margin of error, pretty good uh, reflection of the whole population in the 1,500, 2,000-person range, and after that, it's diminishing returns. The slope falls off very quickly, and there's no reason to sample that many more and spend a lot of money. Is that true? And if so, why why even bother getting a larger sample size by you know averaging all these polls together? Well, th- this is the way I would put it. Um, when you're an individual pollster, there's two kinds of error you can make. One kind is... Uh, unavoidable because it's random sampling. And, and it's just always going to be the case that when you call people at random, there's going to be a little bit of error simply because you couldn't call everybody. Right. And then there's another kind of error, which uh, statisticians and scientists call systematic error, where maybe your assumptions that went in are wrong, and maybe you're not quite sure about how many little old, old ladies are going to go vote. And if you're an individual pollster, your job is probably to get enough people so that your random error is small enough to be smaller than the systematic error, mm-hmm. so that you're no longer uh, messing up your result by not calling enough people. Mm-hmm. So at some level, that's their performance standard. And so for that reason, there's a limit to how much they need to do. Uh, the other reason is just economic. If, uh, these, are, these public polls are typically uh, commissioned by media organizations who are trying to get a news story out. And getting a really sharp picture is not always to the advantage of a media organization, because honestly, uh, Media organizations don't mind a horse race. They don't mind something being within the margin of error. It's exciting when something's within the margin of error. And so it's not necessarily in the economic interest of, say, a a media organization to spend four times as much money and get half as much uncertainty, right? Because then what? They have to spend 50000 instead of $12,000 on a poll, and there's a good chance that they're not going to get as interesting a story. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but that, that is, those are the economics of it. <laughs> well, this actually hits on a big issue I want to talk about. Before we jump into it, which is this idea of traditional punditry versus uh, statistical analysis of the kind you do, um, could you demystify the margin of error for us? Um, it's, a, it's a term I think is misunderstood a lot. You'll hear people say, well, uh, this poll has a margin of error of plus or minus 3%. And people take that to mean that uh, within that band, plus three percentage points or, or minus, there is nothing that can be known, and then there, therefore it's a complete kind of a, a twilight zone in there. But that's not really true, is it? No, no, that's not true. What, uh, what the margin of error means is that if something is within that margin, then we're much less certain about what's going on. But uh, even if, say, uh, even if Obama led Romney in, in a poll by one point, it would still be more likely than not that he was actually ahead. It's just that we have less information. So I'll, I'll, I'll anchor the, the idea. Let's say that the margin of error on a poll, which, as it's typically reported, is 3%. That's a fairly typical margin of error. Um, if candidate A leads candidate B by that number, by the margin of error, then the odds are 5 to 1 that he, he or she is genuinely ahead. Right? So mm-hmm. if Obama leads Romney by three points in Ohio in a single poll from, say, PPP, uh, then the odds are that it's five to one that he's actually ahead. So, and if it's less than three uh, points of margin between the two candidates, then he's probably ahead, but we can't be sure. 
And if it's more than three points, then we're pretty sure he's ahead. So even a margin that is smaller than the margin of error is informative, which is where my analysis comes in, because I can take lots of those margins that are a little bit on the small side and we're not so sure what's going on, and put them together and get much more statistical certainty about who's really ahead. And if you keep seeing polls uh, that show a lead for one candidate, even within the margin of error, that's starting to get persuasive. That's right. So if you look at these medians of polls that I've been talking about, uh, those medians were accurate right down to one percentage point. So in every case where I had a polling median that was uh, even down to 1% between the two candidates, that median correctly pr- uh, predicted the winner. So for instance, uh, right up to the election, the median of polls in North Carolina was Romney up on Obama by 1%. And in fact, Romney won the state of North Carolina. So that's a case where the aggregate had uh, an uncertainty of one percentage point, which is much less than the margin of error in a single poll, and yet we were able to get it correct. (laughs) Does it drive you crazy, though, when you hear concepts like that being uh, uh, misstated in the press? I mean, for instance, I I think we often hear, well, those are within the margin of error, therefore they're meaningless. It's a total toss-up. It's yes, a I think uh, one of my readers wrote into me that his head was ready to explode because <laughs> Wolf Blitzer came on CNN and said, Obama leads Romney by 4% in our poll, therefore it's a tie. And I was just ready to let oh, him yeah. Yeah, yeah. read that. Right? Exactly. Because, because, but, that's, but that's an interesting story. It's exciting to say that something's a tie, but if, it's not that interesting to say. I mean, if you look at what I've written over the last few months at election.princeton.edu, uh, I've said things like, Obama's probably going to win, and the odds are about 9 to 1 in his favor. And if I just keep on saying that over and over again, in principle, that's not really news. I would not really make it as a journalist, because <laughs> my, my stance would be, yeah, he's probably going to win. As it turns out, there is a category of people who like the kind of information uh, that's denoised and uh, and made clearer, and those are my readers. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, your readers in a, a large and growing public. I mean, uh, obviously... At the very top of the pyramid right now in terms of publicity is Nate Silver of the 538 blog on the New York course, Times. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure you guys are all gnashing your teeth in jealousy. But, <laughs> uh, but, but, the, but then there's you, and, and there's a, a, a number of others. Uh, you know, there's pollster.com. They're uh, very good. That's they, Mar- they, are, they are very good. I would say that uh, on technical grounds, they are at the very top. That's, that's Mark Blumenthal et al.? Yes, those guys. Uh, yeah, right. Simon Jackman, who's actually a local to the Bay Area. Uh, Simon Jackman is Stanford. at Stanford, I believe. Yeah. Right, right. And then there's Poll Tracker, and there's Votomatic with Drew Linzer. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the website where this approach, I think, first gained some attention was Real Clear Politics, although they strike me as somewhat less sophisticated than all the others. They've, uh, they've been very old school about it. I think they must have people in the finance industry who like their little Bloomberg terminals that are very hard to read. <laughs> and I, I think they don't mind that look so much. And then there's, you didn't, actually, you didn't even mention uh, Andrew Tannenbaum, in, who started electoralvote.com. And Tannenbaum is a computer scientist who is sort of the granddaddy of many of us. He started doing this in 2004, I think the same year I did, come to think of it. Um, but he's been around for a while, too. Uh, but it is true that the whole thing got mainstreamed, really, I think, when Nate Silver... Uh, started writing color commentary four years ago. And really, what might be unappreciated is that there have been clouds of people doing this for uh, at least back to 2004. But I think it's really the commentary that he did that made it fun. And there was something he did that made uh, nerding out over polling numbers enjoyable. And he was able to light that fire. And that is, I have to admit, that's fascinating to me. It is, and this seems to be the breakthrough year. I mean, I thought 2008 was a big year. Uh, Nate Silver got a lot of attention that year. You got less attention, though your prediction was spot on. Um, but this year, something new entered the equation, I think, which is it became highly politicized, um, that there was this uh, unskewed polls movement yeah. where uh, Romney supporter decided that there were too many Democrats in the polling mix, and therefore he would pull them out of the results and show what was really happening. Romney is winning. Um, a lot of people on the you know conservative Republican side jumped on that bandwagon. A bunch of pundits actually stuck their necks out and denounced people like. Well, I don't think were ever were you ever the target. Certainly, Nate Silver was. He was called. Mm, I a, got a little bit of noise, but uh, <laughs> but he was. Uh, it was very fortunate to have him sticking up so high above the landscape. <laughs> Joe Scarborough, the MSNBC host yeah. and former Republican congressman, called him a joke. Um, David Brooks, who's a mild-mannered and gentlemanly fellow, just said that, uh, quote, when they start projecting, they're getting into silly land. And then there were some, you know, real ideologues who said you were all Democrat tools, right? That's right. We were all in the tank for Obama, which is (laughs) sort of like saying that a 
weather forecaster in the, in the tank for hurricanes. Or like a climate scientist is in the tank for global warming. Something like that, yeah. I think that um, I would say that um, many of those people, uh, I would guess, do not have technical backgrounds, and it probably had not occurred to them that what we were doing was reporting the data as well as we could. I think it didn't dawn on them that maybe we were not leaning on the pinball machine, that we were just <laughs> trying to say, look, this is what we see. Here's the thermometer, and this is what it says. And for purposes of planning, you might consider uh, acting as if this is true. And so, look, when the hurricane forecaster says that Sandy is headed for New Jersey, I here in New Jersey, I think, uh, I guess I'd better buy some batteries and some water. I don't think that, huh, that forecaster is bitter about New Jersey. So I think that this is in the same category, if honestly done. And I think that a lot of those pundits are used to having uh, their careers built on speaking from the gut, speaking from their decades of experience, uh, speaking from access to powerful people. And this is a new kind of approach that's just not their previous style. Um, yeah, yeah, that's putting it mildly. Um, and there are definitely some paroxysms in the punditocracy uh, that they may be overthrown by the nerds, you know, and that may be taking it too far. Uh, one reaction that was interesting is, is um, the aforementioned uh, David Brooks wrote in the New York Times, in fact, where he confesses to being a polaholic. Yes. Uh, and he said, if there's one thing we know, it's that even experts with fancy computer models are terrible at predicting human behavior. Financial firms with zillions of dollars have spent decades trying to create models that will help them pick stocks, and they have gloriously failed. Most important stuff happens. Obama turns in a bad debate performance. Romney makes offensive comments at a fundraiser. These unquantifiable events change the trajectories of tight campaigns. You can't tell what's about to happen. What? I would beg to differ with that. I, I think that I, I think I'm going to give you what you want, which is that uh, Mr. Brooks is saying that those things are unquantifiable, but I think he is missing the point. Those things are precisely quantifiable, and it is possible for me to say, okay, I wasn't necessarily expecting Romney to turn in such a powerful debate performance. Nonetheless, I can tell you that he closed the gap between him and Obama by five points in one day, and that's something that an aggregator like me can say and that he cannot say. So I would I would contend that it may be that he is not able to quantify those things with his methods, but these tools in the hands of a person like him can have a lot of power because they can show people what things really are and where things are really at. So my take on it is that, uh, is that I think that maybe, um, I don't know, maybe we could have like a little uh, polling summer school for pundits. Mm. Well, there's a deep misunderstanding, too, I think. Uh, you know, please jump in and tell me I'm wrong if I am, in, in what Brooks wrote, in that he thinks you're trying to predict uh, human behavior in the sense of reading minds. In fact, what you're doing is you're taking people's own professed intentions in polls who say, I'm going to vote for Obama. You're taking them at face value and adding them up. Yeah, I think it's a little bit in the category of uh, the consultant who is hired to take your watch and tell you what time it is. <laughs> and, uh, and look, there is an element of prediction in the sense that re-election races don't move that much. Mm -hmm. And if you've if you follow past re-election races, uh, whoever's leading in July is usually whoever wins in November, and that is very generally the case, and it's possible to quantify that. And so there is an element of prediction. Now, certainly it's not possible to predict that a particular video will come out. It's not possible to predict that, that, that the star attraction at the Republican convention is going to spend his time talking to an empty <laughs> chair. Like, those are not things that I can predict, but I can predict very generally that there's a band where the strike zone is likely to be, and if you're in that strike zone, then you should be ready for it. And, and I just want to, you know, reiterate that when it comes to actually uh, uh, being able to say what people are do, polling is maybe the most mundane, the, the least magical example ever, because it really just asks them what they're going to do and then uses statistics to, uh, to try to guarantee that the samples are correct. That's uh, right. You know? it's, it's a craft that is very grounded in just assuming you ask people what they're going to do, and then you write it down. You mentioned before, Sam, that you know newspapers, the news industry, which is in some sense in the business not only of informing but also entertaining, may not really have a real keen interest in simply giving boring facts that don't change from day to day, i.e., you know, some of the, the meta-polling or meta-analysis that you and other aggregators deal in tells a rather boring story of an Obama lead continuing uh, right through the summer, into the fall, and into Election Day, uh, with a few little bumps here and there, right? There was indeed a, a closing after the Denver debate. 
where where Romney was, you know, almost universally believed to have won. Wasn't there a bit of a tightening there? Yeah, I would say that uh, that although the conditions favored an Obama victory based on July opinion, and it sure looked very likely that that would happen, there were certainly moments that were big swings, uh, and it, they weren't necessarily the moments that we were hearing about from pundits. So, for instance. Uh, it's not true that Romney had momentum in the last three weeks. If anything, it, things were moving towards Obama in the last three weeks. But you're right that there are several moments when there was genuine drama and genuine suspense. And I, I would say there are two of them. One of them you've mentioned, which is the debate, where seemingly overnight, in fact, actually overnight, when you look at the numbers, in a single day, Romney closed nearly all the gap between him and Obama. And and I would say that if the election had been on October 13th, shortly after that debate, there is a very open question of who would have won an election held immediately after that debate. Uh, Another genuine moment of suspense was the week after uh, Romney announced that Paul Ryan would be his running mate. There was a a crush of media attention on this uh, new, youngish, by political standards guy uh, who was entering the scene, and uh, and people didn't know very much about him. And there was a whole week of fairly favorable press coverage. And if you look again at the state poll meta-analysis that we did, uh, it looks like there was a really big closing of the gap. Now, in either of those cases did the closing of the gap last for longer than about a week or two. Uh, but nonetheless, I would say, based on real hard crunching of the numbers, those are the two true moments of drama in the campaign. There is a, a new uh, storyline being hawked out there right now by the losing side that indeed they were ahead, indeed it all would have come together for Romney had it not been for Sandy, the storm. That's horse pucky. So let's see. <laughs> so Romney's campaign peaked around October 10th to 13th, like sometime after the first debate. There are graphs that you can see at, le- at election.princeton.edu where we show that trajectory of coming up to a peak for Romney and then sliding back towards Obama. And there's no mistaking it. For several weeks before Sandy, uh, things were moving uh, in the direction of Obama. Now, it may be the case that Sandy took all the wind out of the sails of Romney being able to say anything in the last week that anybody would listen to. But honestly, by the end of a campaign, nobody's really listening at that point anyway. It's just more getting ready for the actual battle. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that, that if you, if, if, when I look at the numbers, it looks like after Sandy, there was a tiny movement towards Obama. And I would say that that tiny movement could have tipped the balance for him winning Florida. And so to the extent that Sandy mattered, it might have been able to take a state that was basically tied and push it over into the Obama column. Mm-hmm. But, but it didn't move Ohio, it didn't move Pennsylvania, it didn't move, you know, whatever, Colorado, Nevada. But, uh, but really, I think Sandy is basically the, the dog that ate my homework. <laughs> so events can matter, but not as often uh, and maybe not as much as the storytellers would have us believe. That's right, and Sandy is a good example of trying to come up with uh, a post hoc excuse for uh, for what went wrong. When whatever it was that we could say went wrong for the Romney side, whether it be economic factors or the candidate or what have you, um, the numbers tell a story where it was baked into the cake in July. <laughs> Sam, you are a neuroscientist. This is a hobby, as you said before. That's right. Do the two in any way intersect? Uh, oh. Do they come together in any way? Uh, yes, very much so. So first off, the math that I use to do all this analysis comes up all the time when we're in the laboratory trying to make sense of our signals, because we are often faced in the laboratory with lots of signals that are a little bit noisy, it's a little bit hard to tell what's going on in the data, and we're trying to make some kind of order emerge from the data. And so one thing we often do in uh, neurophysiology, which is what we do in my laboratory, studying how single cells work, either together or even in the whole animal, uh, we are often faced with the problem of of extracting meaning out of that. And that's something that requires statistics. in another respect, so that's so. First off, my day job uses the same math that my hobby does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is that, um, in fact, if you look at these decisions, uh, this is getting away from my own research, uh, but it's interesting to think about things like undecided voters. Are they really undecided? And one thing that emerges from analyzing the data and also from decision-making research is that people think they're undecided, and they may tell someone like a pollster that they're undecided. But as it turns out, they're really committed. They just have not formed a full awareness of what their commitments are. 
So that's an area where uh, where what you read in the poll uh, perhaps gets interpreted a little bit differently once you know about how people make choices. So you are both a neuroscientist and a poll aggregator or gator. <laughs> Two of the sexiest professions on the map right now. <laughs> this week, that's true. <laughs> Good thing we got them on this week. That was Sam Wong, who teaches molecular biology and neuroscience at Princeton University and runs the Princeton Election Consortium. And uh, by the way, that conversation and the one coming up with another prescient polling aggregator was recorded just a couple days after the election when the final outcome of the Florida vote wasn't yet known. Well, it has since been officially declared for President reelect Obama. This is the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And the subject today is how to predict an election. And my next guest is... Drew Linzer. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Emory University. And you are the kingpin of what's called Votomatic. Kingpin, webmaster, mastermind, whatever you'd like to call it. <laughs> Head chef. <laughs> right. Uh, tell us what Votomatic is and what it, what it did uh, just a few days ago. Sure. Uh, Votomatic is a website that I set up to accompany some research I had done into presidential election forecasting, and I thought it would be a fun project to take the forecasts that my research had produced and put them out on the Internet. Um, I succeeded in calling the outcomes of all 50 states in the election accurately uh, on Election Day, uh, but I also was able to accomplish that feat uh, back in June using my model. So, uh, <laughs> I felt pretty pleased with with how that how that worked out. Well, I'm going to allow you to uh, pound your chest today. Okay. So I'm looking at the Votomatic website right right now, and I see the final prediction: Obama 332 electoral votes, Romney 206, which apparently is the absolutely correct one, uh, assuming Florida is indeed called. F- for uh, Obama, which it looks like it will be. Right. Uh, Romney's already conceded it, but apparently there's still some votes to be tallied. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at the graph, and it is pretty much flat with a couple of little bumps all the way back to, as you say, June. So you actually had the same projection in June? Yeah. You want me to talk a little bit about how, how I did that? Yeah, I sure do. Okay. So the way my, the way my model works, and I should say, um, this research has been peer-reviewed, and it'll be appearing in the Journal of the American Statistical Association. In an upcoming issue. Yes, under the uh, alluring title, Dynamic Bayesian Forecasting of Presidential Elections in the States. That's right. Uh, I love the title, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but just okay. tell me how you do this. Sure. So what I do is um, I rely on two sources of information. So early on in the in the campaign over the summer, um, we can draw upon factors that are traditionally associated with presidential election outcomes. And in my case, I use three variables, the approval rating of the incumbent president measured by Gallup, the growth of the economy in the uh, early part of the election year, and whether or not the party of the president have held power for um, one term or more than one term. And so putting these three factors together and comparing over past elections uh, produces a general sense of how the election should turn out at the national level. And so, and so when I did this, I got an estimate that Obama should be expected to receive about 52% of the, of the major party votes, so excluding um, third-party uh, votes. I took that estimate, I compared it to how Obama did in 2008, and just calculating that difference indicated that Obama should do about a percent or two worse across the board compared to 2008. And so if, if that's all you're willing to uh, assume about the outcome, that actually produced a forecast that Obama would get 332 electoral votes. Of course, those forecasts are subject to a lot of uncertainty. You bet. So what my model is designed to do is just recognize that uncertainty and say, okay, well, as we go along, we have this other source of information, which is these state-level public opinion polls. And there's lots of them now. It corresponds to hundreds of thousands of interviews all across the country at the state level. And so my model updates the initial forecasts based on the historical factors uh, to account for changes in public opinion. And so the other thing that was interesting about this year is that public opinion was unusually stable. Uh, we didn't see a lot of change in how people preferred Obama or Romney. And so as my model updated based on those polls, it didn't really need to change that much. Yeah, you know, um, the later stage that you described in your model, which relies on state polls, is Mm -hmm. a tried-and-true method that a lot of your fellow aggregators use. The part that surprises me is that you would really put much trust in those historical indicators you know, months before the election. I mean, for instance, approval rating, man, that can fluctuate a lot. So taking a snapshot back in June and saying, 
well, it looks like Obama will do just a little worse than he did last time around. That seems like, uh, you know, that seems like a, a wild-ass guess. There's, there's a bit of luck involved. <laughs> um, you know, I'd like to think there's some skill as well, but it would be it would be dishonest for me to say that, uh, to a certain extent, getting it exactly right in June wasn't a little bit lucky. But but uh, later on, when you were using, again, the, the, the more solid method of just analyzing actual polling data from the states. That's and, right. That's when you, uh, you know, really confirmed a result that turned out to be exactly right. Um, now, Nate Silver of the 538 blog is getting all the attention. A few other guys have managed to gain some visibility, but Votomatic has been kind of under the radar, I think, a lot. Do you, do you feel bad about that? Did you want some bragging rights, too? I actually have been extremely satisfied <laughs> uh, with the entire project. I'll tell you, for having just set it up, uh, for having just set it up this summer and for a research project that is uh, comes out of an academic realm rather than a, a mass media or blog world. Uh, I feel like I've gotten more than enough recognition, and uh, you know, like Nate Silver has an enormous audience that he that he earned based on what he did in 2008. And I'm thrilled that you know that he brings that sort of quantitative perspective to political reporting. It was something that I've always thought was missing and was one of the main reasons that motivated me to work on this project in the first place. Uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but I would like to unpack that title of your article that summarizes this work, Dynamic Bayesian Forecasting of Presidential Elections in the States. The Bayesian part, this is a a body of statistical uh, thought or technique. How does that work? Let Let me put it to you this way. There's two ideas basically about probability. Uh, one is called frequentist and one is called Bayesian. And the frequentist idea is, is appealing in some respects, and that's the idea that a probability is a number that represents the long-term outcome of a repeated process. So, for example, if you flip a coin over and over and over again and count up how many times are heads, you can say that, well, half of them were heads. So the probability of getting a head on any single coin flip is 50%. And that's fine, and that's useful for understanding the world, but mostly if you know what those probabilities are to begin with. And so we understand coins very well, and we can say with some degree of certainty that, that in fact, if you see a coin, that it's probably going to be 50-50. Mm-hmm. The, the Bayesian perspective is a little different, and I think it's a bit more intuitive and more in line with how we actually approach the world. And that is, we don't understand how future events are going to unfold, but we have some rough sense before they happen about, about the likelihood of various events happening. And... Um, and so, for example, in my case, I had a rough sense, I had a pretty good sense that Obama was in good shape for re-election, but I wasn't certain about it, um, in the same way that if you check the weather report, it might tell you that there's a 30% chance of rain. And so, um, as you get closer to the event, what Bayesian statistics allows you to do is update what we call your prior beliefs, the beliefs that you held about the event having no information, with information that comes along. And so there's a gradual process of learning which is really how, how we all approach the world, I think, intuitively. As we find out more information, we adjust what we previously thought about the world to be more in sync with this new information we're getting. And so Bayesian statistics is a way of formalizing that learning and that logic to, I guess, have a better sense, what we call the posterior probability, have a better sense of, of what the world is really like. Uh, life is not like a casino. It's not a game in which we know all the rules in advance and all the probabilities in advance. Exactly. And Bayes, tell us who Bayes was. He was a, a, a reverend and a mathematician who came across this formula, which is named after him, Bayes' Rule, and, which is basically a, a way of combining uh, your prior beliefs with information that comes along to learn in a systematic way. And did that get him excommunicated? You know, I'm trying to remember <laughs> my history, and I'm ashamed I don't remember it better, but I believe it was published posthumously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but it, in any case, it's an incredibly powerful idea, and it's, uh, you know, transformed statistics as we know it. In your case, the Bayesian part was simply updating your numbers based on the polling data that was coming in over time, right? That's right. So the idea was to do this in real time as these polls are released, to take every new poll, recognize that it has sampling error and other sources of, of variability, um, and to recognize that when public opinion changes, it does so typically in a consistent way across all 50 states and sort of pool or, or what we say in statistics is borrow this, this strength, borrow this information across all 50 states to gradually improve the forecasts uh, in each state. Now, 
I think you'd agree that statistics is an area that the intuitive human brain has a lot of trouble with. Yes. In fact, we are statistical morons. <laughs> well, and, I'm an educator and I'm working <laughs> on that. <laughs> well, that's part of what this show is about. Um, what do you think the biggest misperceptions are? Uh, what were the biggest misunderstandings of statistical concepts as applied to uh, voting uh, okay. that you saw during this last campaign? Well, voting or, or polling? Polling. Let's say both. The number one, the number one um, misconception, I think, at least in the popular reporting of polls, is that people tend to grossly understate the amount of sampling error that goes into these polls. The polls are reported as if they represent truth, when in fact they represent truth plus or minus some amount of error that arises just because you haven't spoken to everyone in the population. You've only spoken to a few hundred or a few thousand people. Mm -hmm. And so to say, for example... The latest CNN poll shows that that 50% of people support Obama. This is up four points from the last poll we did last week. Uh, you know, that's not accurate. Probably the reality is that nothing has changed, and this is just reflecting sampling variability. And that results in a kind of noisy um, jitter in the signal. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, but if we look for longer-term trends, not day-to-day, -day, not right. these little bounces from day-to-day, -day, we can actually start to see real things, right? Well, the trick is, and it's actually fairly simple, is that these random errors, these sampling errors, go in both directions around the true value. Right. And so if you have enough polls, which we do, all you have to do is average the polls together, <laughs> and those errors cancel out. Now, this is not black magic. Uh, polling, no. <laughs> polling has been uh, practiced with you know, a good degree of accuracy going all the way back to the 1930s at least, right? Yes. And statistics, some of these concepts are more than 100 years old. That's right. Go back to like Leibniz and people like that. Um, so why is your work and, and that of your fellow aggregators being treated like it is this brave new world uh, that's just burst on the scene? I, I wonder about that myself. <laughs> um, I, I would say, so on one hand, and I, put, and I wrote this on my Twitter account, for better or worse, but I, I think it's almost kind of adorable that people are, <laughs> are learning now that there's this relatively simple method rooted in, in probability theory that produces very accurate, uh, a very accurate picture of the world. And professionals who are in the public opinion field and, and professional campaign organizers, they, they know this because they use these tools. Mm -hmm. um, but to really realize and come to grips that there's a professional pundit class who doesn't seem to uh, want to take advantage of this information, or that more generally it seems like some sort of amazing wizardry that you can cancel out these errors in this way, um, I think that statistics is, is a field that is rapidly gaining in importance and in recognition right now, now that we have larger amounts of quantitative information available to us. Here, talk about big data, for example, is an emerging trend in business and commerce. Uh, and I think, that, I think that education is still catching up to that. And there's a movement in the universities and, and at other levels to beef up resources towards greater quantitative literacy and statistical understanding just because of the importance of this set of ideas. But, you know, that, that takes time, and, and this is a relatively recent trend. And I think these ideas are spreading, and I think the success of Nate Silver, for example, hopefully people like me and other aggregators, you know, uh, they did a terrific job with this at the Huffington Post, for example. Uh, that's uh, Polster, yeah. That's right, yeah. Uh, so, so Mark Blumenthal is the man behind that, and Simon Jackman, who's a professor at Stanford, worked closely with him. Right. I mean, I think this is going to grow in understanding, and it's really going to, I hope, help people get a better understanding appreciation for how we can learn about politics and social phenomena and public opinion and all these sorts of things that I think are important. Um, I am remembering uh, something that Noam Chomsky said many years ago about the fact that while some people claim that the American public is intellectually disengaged and doesn't like information, all you have to do is look at the sports world to see that that's not true. Millions of people, extremely well-informed, talking very analytically, not about maybe issues that really, really matter in the big scheme of things, but about sports. And I thought of that because... Sports has been applying these techniques very successfully. Everybody knows about Moneyball, right? Uh, Nate Silver, though he has an economics degree from the University of Chicago, so he has a good statistical, I think, background from that, he was a sports geek before he started, you know, calling elections. That's right. Um, isn't it a bit ironic that our political 
I'm going to, I guess I'm going to join the crowd and hammer the pundits right now, like everybody's doing right now. Let's kick the pundits. That, that political, um, punditocracy, the chattering classes is behind the sports world. I mean, it is, is lagging behind the sports world and it's a realization that statistics matter. Um, am I wrong about that? Am I overstating it? Well, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to bite my tongue a little bit here. Okay. But what I would say that, you know, who's not behind in the political sphere is the campaigns. Uh-huh. The campaigns are doing this stuff, and they don't publicize it right. because it's part of their strategy. They but, have their own polling organizations working for them. Well, not only that. I mean, they invest heavily in collecting this information. Uh, the Obama campaign in particular, I've been reading a lot of reporting about this, had an extremely sophisticated, historically sophisticated data analytics operation where they would test every message where they would micro-target potential supporters, where they would identify regions and areas and, of supporters to turn out to vote. I mean, the campaigns are doing this because they see the value in it. Uh, the, the sort of limited scraps of information from public polls and historical data that falls to, to outsiders like me uh, pales in comparison. It's, it's known in political circles that, that there, there are benefits to taking a hard quantitative approach. Um, you know, from the outside, from the pundit class, I think that it just hasn't caught up. You know, I, I don't think I've ever seen an election where there was such a sharp division uh, between the people on the one hand, and I'll include myself in this group, who were nothing less than addicted to polling aggregators like yourself. Okay. And Nate Silver and Princeton Election Consortium right. and Pollster and Poll Tracker, and I could go on. Right. People like me who daily check these things, and then other people who seem to ignore and dismiss them and even invent a countervailing reality, like the unskewed polls movement. Right. Uh, this is a, a conservative, kind of a blogger-type guy, yes. who created his own polls that subtracted a certain amount of the Democratic uh, uh, a sample. What uh, he did was, if I can just jump in, sure. he believed that the, that, the, that the polls that were being released had an incorrect breakdown of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. Yes, in their yes. And that as a result, in particular, that there were too many Democrats. And so as a result, <laughs> they were grossly overstating the amount of support for President Obama. And so what he did is he reweighted the polls to reflect what he believed the accurate breakdown of party identification was in the population, um, effectively weighting up or counting Republicans more heavily. And so he was getting results that were much, much more favorable to Mitt Romney. And uh, the problem, of course, was that that the polls were right. And his <laughs> assumptions were not right. So that's and, what he was doing. And he, by the way, has come out and said, uh, quite frankly, that he was dead wrong. That's right. Um, but he was just one manifestation of this. There were many, many right-wing commentators who refused to accept the data that people like you were producing, right. who, who basically came up with a completely opposite story, that there was a great deal of momentum behind Mitt Romney and nothing short of a landslide uh, was in store for Romney. Uh, George Will, Michael Barone, is it pronounced Barone? I believe so. Uh, Carl uh, Rove. Carl Rove. People, some of whom had a vested interest, some of whom, you know, obviously were betraying their sympathies, but who were trying to be objective. But I've even read that Romney himself, this may be wrong, but... I, I read this too. You read this too, that he was convinced he was going to win, that he really was ready with that victory speech yeah. and the big party, and they, ha they even rolled out accidentally a victory version of his website which they quickly withdrew. But is it possible that the campaign and people who should have known better were that self-deluded? Wow. I mean, I've been thinking about this question all week because I've been reading the same articles that you have. And if it's true that inside the Romney campaign that they had this misimpression, then, then I find that, as someone who worked in campaigns before getting into academia, I find that astounding uh, and a bit hard to believe. Uh, on the other hand, the incentives outside the campaign among more right-wing pundits are more understandable. It's true that they might have fallen prey to a certain amount of motivated reasoning in filtering out information that didn't agree with what they wanted to believe about the world. But, you know, I can also understand them wanting to rally their troops and provide a picture that was a bit more favorable. Um, I think one of the nice things about election-related punditry as opposed to 
commentary on other political issues is that there actually is a right answer on election day. <laughs> and and I was in a debate with a with a writer named Jay Cost who's at the Weekly Standard and again on Twitter which I just think is so entertaining. <laughs> um who was who was arguing why he thought the polls were were off. And I mean I didn't agree with his analysis but I had no way of knowing for sure. And I said to him, look the election is in 3 days, so let's just Let's just reconnect after Election Day, and one of us will be right. The polls will have either proven to be accurate on average, or they won't, and then we can settle this. Uh, and it turned out that, that the polls were, on average, correct, and, um, and he had to admit his error, as many people have. So I don't think that we're, this is going to solve the problem of motivated reasoning, but I hope it does restore, perhaps, people's trust in public opinion research as a valuable um, way of gathering information and maybe put the rest some of these conspiracy theories that aren't really helping or informing anybody. Now, now it should be added, though, it, it's possible to overplay the lesson to be learned here, isn't it? I mean, some people now think, oh, my God, polls know everything, we can predict everything. In fact, you know, asking people how they're going to vote, adding that up and assuming that they're telling the truth is maybe the simplest problem a poll could ever solve. There are a lot of things where asking people questions doesn't necessarily get at the answer because the question's badly phrased, because it's a very amorphous issue, because people don't even know their own minds well enough. Yes. Yeah, and well, that's exactly right, and that's a great point. And even about using polls for election forecasting, um, the polls are, are historically very accurate just before Election Day, but they, but they lose in accuracy the farther away you get from Election Day. And so even the information about, you know, in this easy, what you're, what you're describing is an easy question, um, dissipates the farther we are away. Mm-hmm. When it comes to understanding people's attitudes about political issues, um, especially the more sort of obscure they become, then, then yeah, polls have all sorts of potential sources of error, question-wording effects. Another source of problems with the polls potentially is that response rates are declining, and so nowadays fewer than 10% of people who are, who are called actually complete survey, right, right. which is which is disastrous, and I would encourage anybody who is listening to this to, to, to please answer the surveys, because uh, if you don't, then we can't get representative samples. Uh, so there are all sorts of issues going on with polling, and, and the, the folks who do this professionally are generally very good at it, but they're having to deal with these issues, and it's not easy. It's not, it's not magic. It requires a lot of skill. Now, um, Drew, let me ask you this, though. You, you just urge people to take part in polls. I can understand why a guy like you, a political scientist who loves and you know cares about this predictive uh, activity, this predictive uh, enterprise you're in, but what's in it for us? Yeah. Why are polls good? I mean, is it really good to know the outcome of an election six months in advance? Yeah, well, the main reason that that polling exists is not for this is not for this sort of parlor game of <laughs> predicting the election <laughs> outcome. Um, <laughs> The, the reason polls exist is it's a source of information and it's a method of research. And there are constantly uh, large numbers of polls happening all the time related to all sorts of things, most of which are not election or politics related. Uh, polls are used by, uh, by marketing firms, by commercial organizations to understand how their products are used and how people are aware of these products. Um, they're used by can- campaigns and candidates to strategize, to, to learn about what people want so that they can reflect that. In exactly. Their- and, and a lot of people, I think, refuse to take part, partly because they're tired of having you know their minds picked for information that only benefits a company or a candidate. I, I would say to that that, um, that if, if by some highly unlikely chance you're, you're the one who's called, yeah, and, and it is very unlikely, we're talking about polls of, of 500 or 1,000 people in populations in the, in the millions, uh, your response represents potentially hundreds of thousands of people like you, and you are the lucky one to have been asked. And so by giving your opinion, by taking that 15 minutes out of your day or whatever it is to give your opinion, um, people who are trying to learn about, about you, know, you and make decisions that can potentially benefit you in certain ways will have your personal information and not the information and opinions of someone else. True, but uh, again, they just want to sell me something, so why should I help them? Well, I mean, maybe they're, maybe the thing that they're trying to sell you will be something more like what you actually want than what someone else wants. 
<laughs> okay, okay, you've made your case. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I want to ask you about some of these meta-narratives that are now being um, read into the you know triumph of the quants this year, the fact that people like you predicted the election pretty precisely. Um, there are a number of stories that are essentially being extracted from this, and it's kind of interesting. One is that, uh, old-fashioned punditry, the horse race type, is dead. That all we really need are pollsters and aggregators. Uh, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I very strongly and sincerely appreciate the work that political reporters and campaign reporters do. Yeah. Uh, genuinely. Uh, I admire that work. That's hard work, and no poll is going to replace that. And I certainly don't view my role, or, or any of us who work with these polls, um, as, as replacing that or threatening that in any way. I mean, that's information that can only be produced through hard work, and it's important. What I hope is that this sort of quantitative work that I do can help with the interpretation side of reporting these events and the commentary side of, of understanding what's going on and what it means. And it's often the case that pundits and commentators make factually incorrect statements about public opinion, based on wisps of stories and, you know, campaign spin. And, and it, that doesn't need to be the case. And so I view my role as potentially contributing to or augmenting this really important reporting that goes on. So when narratives come along, for example, that say Mitt Romney has momentum coming out <laughs> of the first debate, well, no, that's just not true. There was a shift in support in his favor following the first debate, and then it stopped. And if anything, it went public opinion went in Obama's favor from there on out. So, you know, having that sort of fact-based corrective to these other misimpressions, that's, that's the added value. It's never, it's never going to replace punditry, and it's certainly never going to replace reporting. Uh, my personal wish is that it would at least um, displace that part of the commentariat that consists of former political operatives or active political operatives who are using their positions uh, their editorial positions simply to uh, to spin. I, I find that incredibly tiresome. I'd rather hear a more independent-minded analyst. You know, it depends on why you watch those programs. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. some people watch those programs for entertainment. Yeah, true, and, and that's, that's mostly why I watch. Well, them. that's what you're doing. You're killing the entertainment because I'm, I'm sorry. I'm staring at uh, Votomatic the whole time we're talking, and I'm seeing these unbelievably flat lines. You know, as opposed to the roller coaster ride that the press gives you each right. day, a new adventure, right. Votomatic and the like give you uh, a flat sea with no waves on it all the way to the horizon. <laughs> well, that was a bit particular to this year. There were fewer undecided this year, and the candidates were both well known. In, in 2008, when Sarah Palin burst on the scene, that was very exciting. That moved public opinion. And then I guess when her bubble burst from the scene, that moved public opinion. Uh, there were much larger swings evident, even in the polling aggregations in 2008. I hear you. Yeah. Um, there's one other narrative I thought uh, I'd, I'd throw at you. You may have uh, happened on this one as well. This is from an article by Dan Lyons, the uh, former uh, technology editor of Newsweek and now with Read, Write, Web. He has an article extolling, you know, again, the results of um, the aggregators like yourself, the polling mm -hmm. aggregators. This is about the triumph of machines and software over gut instinct. The age of voodoo is over. The era of talking about something as a dark art is done. In a world with big computers and big data, there are no dark arts. Okay. Uh, That's an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> a perfect world of machine-like order. Uh, no more human fallibility. <laughs> I, I, let, me, let me step back and take a broader, a broader view. Um, I'm a social scientist, that's what I do, and I study social phenomena quantitatively. It's unbelievably hard, and the number one reason why it's hard is because, is because human behavior is noisy and extraordinarily difficult to predict. And it's just, it's not like a physical system or a chemical system, where you can even do experiments to understand the processes that are at work. It's just unbelievably hard. And of all of the things that you can study in, in political science or sociology or economics, um, presidential elections are probably the easiest. 
Well, Drew, um, I'm going to have to dismantle the shrine I was building to <laughs> you and Nate Silver and uh, we did okay. Mark Blumenthal. <laughs> we did okay. But you guys are being treated almost as soothsayers, as a group of magical guys. It's kind of funny to see that happen. Uh, well, are you enjoying it? I'm very, I'm very pleased. <laughs> and if I've contributed in any way to, um, to helping people understand how these processes work and what the science is behind it, and potentially for the future to inject more fact-based reporting and punditry into the national conversation, then that would be a terrific development, and um, it's a nice thing to be part of. Well, you've certainly helped me and my listeners, so I really want to thank you. Thank you. Drew Linzer teaches political science at Emory University, and he's the creator of Votomatic. Check it out at votomatic.org. And you can learn more about this show at 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I predict that I will be back next week.